Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Every time we do a show on water issues in California, we get calls asking about the prospects for desalination, turning salt water into fresh. It's sometimes galling, I guess, to see that whole Pacific Ocean there and not be able to take a long shower or water the lawn. So for all those callers through the years, this one is for you. We'll talk with experts about the Bay Area's desalination projects and the prospects for the technology to improve in the coming years. And then we'll continue our series on the American asylum system with a conversation about Central Americans' longtime struggle to find refuge in the United States from war and government abuse. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As the climate changes, one prospective adaptation that coastal dry regions could make would be taking seawater and turning it into freshwater by extracting the minerals that make saltwater salty. Desalination, as it's known, is one of those technological fixes that had quite a life in the utopian visions of the 20th century, but that's faltered most places because of its energy usage, cost, and environmental impacts. It's not impossible. Newark has desalinated brackish water from the groundwater basin beneath Alameda Creek since 2003, And desperate times may lead some Bay Area regions to take desperate measures. Marin County officials are considering desalination to help weather the current drought, which is expected to deplete water resources there as early as next summer. And Antioch is also launching a $100 million desalination project as well. Joining us to help sort the dream from the reality is David Sedlak, a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UC Berkeley, where he also directs the Berkeley Water Center. He's the author of Water 4.0, The Past, Present, and Future of the World's Most Vital Resource. Welcome to the show, David. Uh, good morning, Alex. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to have you on. So for a place like Marin, um, it seems like there are a few options. You you import the water from somewhere, you double down on recycling and wastewater treatment, or you bring on desalination as a new supply source. Is that kind of basically the menu of options? That's the menu of options for most parts of the Bay Area, but Marin's a little bit of a special case because they don't have imported water. They get most of their water from the the rain that falls within the county. And it's a little more challenging for Marin to do a recycling project because of how far out, uh, spaced out a lot of the population is. So Marin is really um, one of the places that has the the greatest challenge when looking for alternatives to uh, ride out a drought. So that's because in, let's say, the East Bay, EB Mud, they have a bunch of interties to the rest of the state water system, whereas Marin would actually need to, as they're considering, run in a, a pipeline over the Richmond Bridge. 
the pipelines, what they did in their last really severe drought, but that really is a, a pretty desperate act and certainly something that's only temporary. Is there some other way that they could bring in water? I've heard, you know, uh, remarks about possibly bringing in water in rail cars. <laughs> um, those kinds of things like towing icebergs and trucking water and bringing it in rail, rail cars turns out to be very expensive. So I think the other alternatives for Marin are to turn back to water conservation and double down on their existing conservation efforts. Um, and also to look at things like capturing more of the stormwater that falls within uh, the, the catchment, not just the stuff that falls out at the reservoirs, but the water that falls within the city. And that's something that has been one of the strategies taken up in Sonoma to the north of them, where they have a similar situation where they rely on local water and they, they turn to stormwater harvesting and using it for groundwater recharge. Yeah. I don't know. No, iceberg towing sounds pretty good to me relative to that. <laughs> um, let's talk uh, a little bit about how desalination actually works. Um, can you just walk us through the sort of the current technology um, as it stands? Sure. There are two main ways in which seawater is desalinated. One is thermal desalination, and that's the old technology that's mainly used in the Middle East, where they have a lot of energy and power plants built near where they need the water. The most common technology used for desalination in places like Southern California or Israel and Australia is reverse osmosis. And reverse osmosis is a technology that was actually developed in the 1960s at UCLA and was slowly improved to the point where it became more energy efficient than the thermal desalination methods. And it basically consists of putting a lot of pressure on seawater and forcing the water molecules through uh, a plastic membrane and leaving the salt molecules behind. And so you get very fresh water and then the salt that you've uh, kept out or rejected gets returned to the ocean through a long pipe that uh, mixes it into the, the sea some distance offshore. So, you know, what I didn't realize was that back in the 50s, the U.S. government kind of established almost like a shadow moon shot, like the Kennedy administration put a bunch of money into the Office of Saline Water to try and improve this technology. And eventually we got to where we are now. Is there room for technological improvement that's like substantial that would really change the economics or environmental impacts of this technology? Or we have kind of reached, you know, a, a technological plateau here. In some ways, we've reached a, a first plateau in desalination. Um, we, I'm part of a, a group of researchers that's working with the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab at the National Alliance for Water Innovation. And we're trying to take desalination to the next level. And the, the low hanging fruit is for things like brackish groundwater and recycling municipal wastewater. The seawater desalination technology is fairly mature and the likelihood that we're going to further reduce energy use or drop the cost, it's, it's on the order of maybe another 20 or 30 percent over the next couple of decades, which, you know, is, is nothing to uh, nothing to pass up. But it's it's not going to see the kinds of tremendous improvements in efficiency that it saw over the past 20 years. Yeah. We're talking about the pros and cons of desalination with David Sedlek, uh, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley. 
And we want to know what your questions are about desalination as a solution to our current drought as well as going on into the future. Call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So you said that the low-hanging fruit is really in brackish water, which we've been doing in Newark here. Um, and, and is that because the energy required to run the process is directly related to sort of how salty the water is, how many, how many minerals are in the water? Well, the brackish groundwater and, and brackish waters have always been less expensive to desalinate, but the real opportunities are in figuring out what to do with the brine. And so one of the challenges that we have when we desalinate water is we produce this, this brine. And if it's not a seawater desalination plant, people have struggled with what to do with the brine. For example, in the Livermore Valley, there are desalination projects that take salty groundwater and put them through that same reverse osmosis pro- process. And they're fortunate that they have a long pipe that goes from the Livermore Valley all the way across through the the Bay Area hills and to San Francisco Bay. And that (laughs) allows them to get rid of the salt. But other places where they have brackish groundwater just don't exploit the technology because they'd be stuck with this, uh, this waste of salt that they wouldn't know how to get rid of. So we see that in the future, places like uh, the Central Valley and uh, New Mexico and Arizona, um, Colorado, there, there are possibilities for using de- uh, brackish groundwater and then finding some way to uh, convert that salty brine into material that might be useful for industrial processes, like you can make sulfuric acid or sodium hydroxide uh, and use it in industry as, as a product of that. But right now, that's prohibitively expensive. Yeah. I'd like to add Daniel Ellis, a senior environmental scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board, to our conversation. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we were just talking about waste, and one of our commenters writes, one of the biggest problems with desalination tech is the leftover sludge left from the process. Nobody wants it in their neighborhood, and you can't just dump it back into the ocean. But my understanding, Daniel, was that, in fact, you can dump it back into the ocean as long as you can properly dilute it or at least dilute it to the sort of regulatory standards we have. That's that's absolutely right. That um, sludge, which we actually refer to as brine, uh, <laughs> can can be discharged offshore into the ocean, and we do have some pretty strict regulations um, in terms of diluting it and protecting the marine life. So we we regulate that very very closely, and it's actually it's a pretty straightforward process. And um, in terms of meeting the salinity requirements for the ocean, it's only two parts per thousand above the natural background salinity within 100 meters. So when you discharge that brine, it's a very small area that we're impacting, but we are impacting the marine life and the benthic life and everything out there in that area. Yeah. And, you know, has that improved over time? Like, have we learned from the desalination plants that have been working in Australia or Southern California about how to do that process? Absolutely, we have. Um, the, the technology is what we generally call diffusers, and they shoot out the brine at a high velocity, which promotes rapid mixing and you know really helps dilute it as quickly as possible. And there, I think David actually mentioned this, there are other ways to do it too, where you can combine that brine with wastewater. So for example, 
if you have very salty brine and you have some wastewater that's mostly freshwater, you can actually combine those two waste streams, discharge them together, and then you're actually discharging something that's a little bit closer to the salinity of the, the environment that's already out there. And so that can be a good way to, you know, do things together. You know, uh, Daniel, one of the things that I've been really curious about is how the water boards in these various places are incorporating climate projections into the decisions that they're making. Are are there rules that you all have set about, like, you must take into account that we may have these droughts that go on longer and longer, or are people mostly using the older baseline still? That's a great question. And it's actually very specifically in terms of what you're describing, which is water loading, where we say, you know, you must recycle X amount of water or do X amount of stormwater capture before you do something like desalination. We actually very specifically don't do that um, because everywhere is different. So the issues in Marin may be different than the issues in the city of San Francisco or way different than Orange County. Um, so we leave that up to the local water districts and municipalities to sort through in terms of managing their own water. We're, I, I want to follow up with you uh, after the break. We're talking about the pros and cons of desalination with Daniel Ellis, a senior environmental scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board, as well as David Sedlick, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley and director of the Berkeley Water Center. We want your questions about desalination. You call in with them all the time when we do other water shows, and now we finally get to answer them. Call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the pros and cons of desalination with David Sedlick, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley and director of the Berkeley Water Center, and Daniel Ellis, a senior environmental scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board. Uh, David Sedlick, I wanted to uh, follow up with you on sort of another climate question. If we looked at the climate that we'll be living in in 2040, say, well, we wish that we'd built these desalination plants and and run the water pipeline from Richmond to Marin. Or like, how should we think about trying to do that forward projection if we end up in a like worst case scenario uh, for the for the Bay Area climate and its sort of water availability? Well, Alexis, it's it's hard to say exactly what the future climate's going to look like, but it's pretty clear that we should be thinking about diversifying our water portfolio because relying upon Sierra snowmelt and uh, rain that falls up in the mountains is not a good recipe for the future. And when it comes to building this kind of water infrastructure, 
it has a really long runway. It takes projects uh, decades to, to get financed and designed and properly built. And when you find yourself doing it in a hurry, because there's an emergency, it costs a lot more money. So I think the watchword is diversification, that is looking towards not only desalination and, and pipelines, but also looking at conservation and water recycling and stormwater capture. But what makes seawater desalination particularly attractive to water utilities is that it's drought proof. And so they see it at a different level than they see some of the other strategies. So between desalination and water recycling, their local water sources, they don't suffer as much during times as drought. And so utilities tend to put a premium on them in their planning analysis. Hmm. I want to start getting to uh, questions from callers because there are a lot. Michael from Oakland, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Um, I was hoping your guests would flesh out a very brief comment they made early in the show uh, when they were asked about water recycling, which is certainly a, a less energy intense and more environmentally benign option. Uh, your guest said that it wouldn't work in Marin specifically because it was too spread out. Uh, it's not obvious to me why sort of the geographic spread makes any difference you you know they still have to get rid of the water somewhere and you can either chuck it away into you know nowheresville or you can reuse it which is just the most sensible thing to do with a precious resource yeah rosie just uh, as a commenter would like to tack on to that as well why is the recycling of wastewater not considered more seriously it seems to me that desalination will lead to other problems down the road we always seem to think we're creating a minor problem only to later discover we've created a major one uh, David Sedlick, do you want to, since that was your original comment, you want to take that one? Sure. And I didn't mean to indicate that uh, recycling is not an option that Marin might look for, but it's been something that's a little bit easier in the larger cities, like uh, like for San Francisco or Oakland or San Jose, where they have these great big de- uh, wastewater treatment plants and they can build a centralized uh, recycling plant. In, in Marin, I think that the, the challenge a little bit is uh, the, the, the reservoirs that supply the water to the city is, are the likely places that the recycled wastewater would go if you're going to reuse it as part of the potable water supply. And, and that's the direction that utilities in California are going these days. So what you do is you, you treat the wastewater and then you have to put it somewhere to store it and get it into the water distribution system. Or the other way is so-called direct potable reuse, where you treat the water and you put it into the water distribution pipes near the treatment plant. And that's a technology that's still in its infancy and getting going. So for example, if we look at San Diego, they have a plan to take their wastewater, recycle it, and pump it all the way up to some of their reservoirs and get it back into the system. The other approach for water recycling, Non-potable water reuse, the so-called purple pipe solution, is something that's being done in in Marin and and other places around the Bay Area. But most utilities are seeing that as 
uh, a pretty expensive way to go once you've already built up the infrastructure. And because so many of the places that would be using that water for landscaping um, are far away from the treatment plant. So it requires a second uh, network of water to recycle it. And so the direction that California's water utilities are going for reasons of cost savings and practicality is that potable water reuse. And, and I meant to say that, you know, Marin, it's a little harder because they have smaller wastewater treatment plants and they have these reservoirs that are relatively far away from where the treatment plants are, are located. But it doesn't mean it's not possible for Marin to do it. And they probably should be looking at it as part of their future water portfolio. Thank you for that. Let's welcome uh, Steve from Pacifica to the show. Good morning. I have two questions. What can we learn from the Israelis? Because they've been doing this for a long time. And second, what about using solar power to power the desalinization plants? Good question. Let's go to uh, Daniel Ellis, a senior environmental scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board. The, the Israelis, as I also understand it, have built a very integrated system, like very much integrated desalination into their water system and have been doing it at fairly low cost as well. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sorry my title is such a mouthful. It's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a long one. So in terms of what we can learn from Israel, um, as, as you hit on, it's a huge, huge part of their water portfolio, desalination is. And on the one hand, their options are very, very limited. And so it's been an essential piece for them. It's come in clutch. On the other hand, there are some very serious environmental effects of that. We've actually seen the, the background, the naturally occurring salinity increase because they are producing so much brine over there. So in the in the surrounding water, we've actually seen a noticeable environmental impact. It's not just a little local effect. It is becoming a regional impact. On the other hand, their options are so limited that that's, that's what they've been forced to do. So we can learn multiple lessons, one of which is that if you do desal on this big, huge scale, it can be very effective. Also, though, there are incredibly high energy costs and environmental impacts that result from it. And we do have to deal with the repercussions of those. And David said, like, what about uh, the using solar power to power desalination plants? It seems sort of like an obvious uh, connection, I think, but how does it work? Well, it's, it's something that might not be practical in the places where a lot of desal plants are located for reasons of you know, real estate costs and, and logistics, but it's quite possible to build a, a solar or wind plant to offset the energy use from the desal plant and feed that electricity into the grid. That's what Perth did when Perth built their first desal plant. They used the occasion of building the desal plant to uh, finance a wind farm that was 150 miles away, but the wind farm produced uh, an equivalent amount of energy as what the desal plant was using. And because they had a brand new customer coming into the grid, they had a place to sell that electricity. Mm. You know, um, Emery writes, uh, I'm curious about how much more feasible desalination is in the future with bringing more nuclear power into the equation, specifically nuclear plants that operate at higher temperatures that can provide high temperature process heat, not just electricity. And what about energy policies to run desalination plants during the times when solar wind supply exceeds the demand? And one reason I really like this uh, comment from Emery is this was actually one of the ways that desalination got such a, uh, a a boost in the 20th century because people imagined these nuplexes they were going to be called with, you know, massive amounts of very cheap nuclear power. 
uh, attached to desalination plants providing fresh water. David, so like, did that vision work out in the first round? I think we know the answer to that is no. <laughs> is there a chance that it would work out uh, today? Yeah, there are some there's some very interesting things to unpack there. Uh, first of all, recognize that California's electricity grid is rapidly decarbonizing. And so as the grid has more and more renewable energy, it doesn't matter where the electricity is being produced. It means that the, the greenhouse gas implications could be coming down. Uh, but like, for example, in nuclear power, uh, that hot water is a little less useful now that we've moved away from thermal desalination to reverse osmosis, although the warmer water is easier to push through the membrane. There's a small savings from that. Um, I, and then the question of making desalination plants work during times when the electricity is cheaper, like uh, like during the, the middle of the day when there's peak. Um, that's one thing that the Israelis have started to do. So their SOREC desalination plant uh, ramps up and down over the course of the day to take advantage of lower cost energy that they, they end up with at night. And so you can do some savings that way, but it's going to be on the margins. It's going to make it like you know, 10 or 20% more efficient and, and drop the cost by about that amount as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard we have the board president of the Marin uh, Municipal Water District on the line. Cynthia in Marin, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much. And I just wanted to thank you all for having this fabulous program. We're seeing a lot of misinformation out there about desal as well as water challenges generally. It's cheap. It's easy. We can cover energy costs with free solar. We can easily repurpose brine. So I really appreciate your bringing um, to light these complicated issues. And it's great to hear David. Um, He and I know each other. So um, my comment is that um, David, I think, is exactly right, that diversifying our water portfolios is the right way to go. We also have to be conscious of costs. We're very fortunate in California and really nationwide that a lot of our water is um, you know, publicly owned, meaning we're accountable to the public. So cost is not a small part of this. And desal, as we've looked at in Marin, as you all know, I think for many years, is a very expensive option. Had we gone with this 16, 15 years ago when we were first looking at it, um, we would have spent $200 million by now for water we would never have needed, so not even for a day. So one question really is, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is to what extent do we balance this, you know, obviously this need for certainty about supply, you know, health and safety um, with cost? And at what point do we get much more serious than we have in California and across the West about what we're using this water for. If we had desal today, we'd be using it to water lawns and medians. So we need to be making, part of that diversification of portfolios is making serious long-term investments in demand reduction to make sure that we are using technology, that we are reusing water you know, on-site, that we're doing gray water cisterns. Um, you know, there's a huge host of distributed decentralized infrastructure that we've only touched um, really only begun to invest in. So um, would love to hear your thoughts about that side of it as we, we balance these very challenging issues. Well, and Cynthia, and let me follow up with you on one uh, quick sure. thing there. You know, $200 million over 15, 16 years, actually for an entire county, particularly one of the wealthiest counties in the, in the country, in the world, doesn't actually sound like that much to me, to be honest. What would that mean for someone on their water bill uh, in a month? 
what it would mean is for most people, because we can't just charge the high water users, right? I mean, we have plenty of pockets of people who are not wealthy here, as is the case in all, you know, in communities, um, you know, around the state and around the country. But what it would mean is that right now we're providing water, you know, Marin is providing water at a price of about a penny a gallon. It's an incredible bargain, which is not dissimilar from water utilities around the state. But had we made that kind of investment, we'd be looking at, you know, bills that were much, much higher. And as it is, you know, people expect bills to be, you know, look, water is, water's not like tomatoes or blue jeans, right? I mean, this is an essential source of life. Not that I don't love tomatoes and blue jeans. I really do love those things. But um, my point is, you know, this is, it's a different kind of thing, right? So um, what we're talking about is, you know, making, you know, taking bills to, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I just don't have those numbers immediately at my right. fingertips and I don't want to be inaccurate. What I recall from when we looked at this um, in the mid 2000s is that we were looking at rates that would go up by double digits. And um, that's a hardship. You know, not everybody has the money to pay for that. Um, we know that water debt is an enormous problem, not just in California, but nationwide. And, um, you know, I think those are, those are issues that have to be considered. This is not just another commodity. So, um, you know, I think the cost of water um, in light of and I think the other thing, to, and this gets very complicated, but because of the way the laws are, are currently in place in California, everybody pays. Right. It's not just, oh, you know, I had a long email exchange with somebody I respect a lot. He said, well, the, you know, people who can who want more water should just be able to pay for more water. It doesn't work like that. We are required when we put in new infrastructure, everybody pays. It's, it's, it's a very narrow band that we are able to say, well, you're charging, you know, you're using more, so you pay more. It's very limited. For the most part, water infrastructure is paid for by everybody. So um, I, would, I would suggest that the infrastructure that, um, that I've been talking about, which is distributed, localized, on-site, that's going to be more climate resilient. It's going to be more affordable. It's going to be more equitable. It's going to create more local benefits. Um, in any number of ways. So I, to be clear, desal has a place. I, you know, I'm not opposed to desalination. I think your guests have made very important points, all of which I agree with about the technology. The question is when and how does that fit into the portfolio and at what price and for what purpose? We're still using roughly 124 gallons of water per person per day. And that's right. And that's not bad in California. We've got plenty of communities in California that are using upwards of 200 gallons of water per person, not household, per day. So we need to get our arms around what does it mean to be consuming water and what are we consuming it for in this climate-changing world. Yeah. Martine uh, backs you up in a tweet. Glad to hear the guests speak to the importance of water conservation before extreme solutions. Growing up in Bolinas, we recognized a long time ago that you have to live within the limits of your resources. When those go down, consumption must too. Um, thank you so much for the call, Cynthia. I want to get to uh, John in Oakland, who has a bit of a, a science and technology question. Welcome to the show, John. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, a number of years ago, did a, was involved in a research project with um, a professor from Yale who was working with um, forward osmosis uh, it was, you know, lower energy costs than reverse osmosis, and you could do it with cheaper materials. Um, you know, you still have the brine disposal thing uh, to deal with. But um, I think the technology has been commercialized by a company out of Boston, Oasis Water. Um, and I was just curious if, uh, yeah, you know, I haven't thought about it in 15 years, but I was curious <laughs> if, you know, if, if either of you knew anything about it. Great. Hey, thanks so much, John. Uh, David Sedlick? 
Sure. So, John, you could check back in with your professor at Yale. I think I think he's been part of, of some of that work. And forward osmosis has found some nice applications in the food and beverage industry and 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 for other types of industrial applications. But for seawater desalination, it hasn't proven to be a silver bullet, um, and it, it's unlikely that it will make make a difference there. So, I think it'll have impacts. Um, for other types of desalination applications, uh, like like taking water out of orange juice and then making concentrate or something like that, but right now no one's seeing it as the uh, the the solution to our water problems. Got it. Uh, Lucia asks: Are pipelines completely out of the question? We have oil pipelines across the country, so it doesn't seem completely infeasible to imagine a pipeline going from east coast to the west coast. How would these costs, costs environmental impact compare to desalination? Daniel Ellis, I'm going to kick that one to you for. A, what have you seen uh, with the experience of, of piping water around in this way? Yeah, um, in terms of how it compares to the environmental impacts of yeah. desal. Yeah, it, it's um, it depends on the pipeline. You know, I think when we're talking about a pipeline going across the Richmond Bridge, that's perhaps comparable to the impacts of a desalination facility, potentially even um, preferable. When we're talking about a much, much longer pipeline, you know, going many, many miles, then you get into not only the environmental costs, but the energy costs, and it becomes a huge, huge problem. And at that point, you know, the costs are huge, the environmental impacts are huge, the um, energy use is huge. At that point, a local desalination facility might be preferable. And I think people underestimate how much water, uh, how much energy is already used in California to move water around the state. Uh, we've been talking about the pros and cons of desalination with David Sedlek, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley and director of the Berkeley Water Center. He's also the author of Water 4.0, as well as Daniel Ellis, a senior environmental scientist with the California State Water Resources Control Board. Thank you all so much for your comments and questions. Uh, stay tuned for more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.